Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast. Episode 139, Nathan Restucia, The Pseudo-Theology of Penitent Privilege. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Nathan Restucia. Nathan is a fellow at the Institute for Free Speech. He's a recent graduate of Georgetown University Law Center, and until last month, he was a judicial clerk on the U.S. Court of Federal Claims. Our podcast today features Nathan's new article, The Priesthood of All Citizens, on the pseudo-theology of penitent privilege. It's forthcoming in the Mississippi Law Journal. In it, Nathan discusses the historical origins of the clergy penitent privilege. As Nathan argues, the clergy penitent privilege that we know today, which protects communications between a congregant and a clergy member for the purposes of spiritual advice, That privilege is far broader than the original penitent privilege in early 19th century American law. As you might suspect, the privilege had its origins in the Catholic confession rite, and judges in the early Republic limited the scope of the privilege to statements made under exactly such formal rites. My discussion with Nathan touches on these differences, why the privilege evolved in this way, whether it's normatively desirable, and whether we might consider a return to these roots. Nathan, delighted to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome. Thanks so much, Ed. I'm really happy to be here. Your article, of course, takes this historical look at how the clergy penitent privilege has changed over time. What got you interested in the topic? And maybe more specifically, what led you to look at these old cases and to take the historical approach that you do? Sure. So my background is in medieval history, actually. Before I even came to law, I did medieval history, including legal history. But that is what I started. That's what my original book was on uh, way back in the day. It has nothing to do with law. So I did some work on confession as a ritual and anthropological looks at medieval confession many years ago. And so the confession was always something very interesting to me in that sense, something I had a long pre-legal interest in about how the penitential system actually works and how it evolved over history and connections between the penitential system and secular law. So when I was looking for something to write on evidence law, which I was just brainstorming because I wanted to do something on evidence law because it was such a fascinating topic, the idea of doing something on the connections between evidence law and the penitential system was sort of natural for me. And as I dug into it, I realized there was this whole story out there about the real quite radical shifts that happened to pre-penitent privilege between its origins in early 19th century America and its explosion in popularity in the middle of the 20th century in America. And you begin the article with a discussion of the Smith case from early 19th century America. And I actually think the Smith case, you probably do too, encapsulates the issue very nicely. So 
Let me give you a couple minutes to tell us about Smith and explain why it's important to this story about the evolution or the change in the penitent privilege. Sure. So Smith was the second really crucial case in the development of penitent privilege in America. The earlier Phillips case, which was in 1810, also a New York City case, had established penitent privilege, but it was specifically about a Roman Catholic priest whose particular confession to him was not allowed to be admitted into evidence. So about 70 years later, the Smith case comes up. In the Smith case, there was a feud between two neighbors, one of them stealing walnuts at night from the other neighbor. He wakes up, they get into a fist fight, then guns come out and one of them ends up shot dead. So then the defendant ends up confessing to his Dutch Reformed pastor while in prison, awaiting trial, and the prosecution attempt to call the Dutch Reformed pastor to testify because the question at the time was really who did the murder? The question was, was it a murder? Was it self-defense? So they're, they're calling the Dutch Reformed pastor to say, he confessed to me that he had sinned here and that it, he didn't need to shoot the guy. It was not self-defense, some version of that. We don't actually know because the Dutch Reformed pastor doesn't actually end up saying much when he finally gets called. But the defense, of course, objects. They cite Phillips. They say, no, you can't call this guy. There's no reason why Phillips should be restricted just to Roman Catholics. Everyone has a need for spiritual advice. Everyone who feels a compulsion on their soul to confess and needs comfort should be able to get that from their cleric. And so that should apply here too. And the three-judge panel says, no, you're totally misreading Phillips. Phillips is not about spiritual advice. It's not that everyone has a need for spiritual advice and thus that's protected. Rather, Phillips is about ensuring substantial equality to Roman Catholics now that we have granted religious freedom in America to ensure that Roman Catholics, because of their very particular sacramental rules, can be protected. But you, Dutch Reformed, you don't have any rule like that. There's no confession to the Dutch Reformed Church. Therefore, the pastor has to testify. So what's really striking about the case is that in many ways, the defense speaks the standard justification for penitent privilege that is used more or less since Wigmore and certainly is used in 20th century cases about some idea that there's an instrumental value to penitent privilege, that people have a natural need for spiritual advice, and that this should apply thus to anyone who has some sort of natural desire to testify or to speak to, to a spiritual counselor. And that's exactly the rationale that gets completely rejected by the judges and said that, no, that's not what this penitent privilege is about at all. Just to make clear, so what you have here is there are two potential doctrines, one which effectively qualifies the privilege only to cases like confessions in the Catholic Church, and the other one, which, as you say, is a broader, more therapeutic privilege that applies to conversations with clergy members more generally. And the modern one is the broader one. The one you see in the Smith case is the more narrow one. Just to talk about where things have gone, the modern doctrine, how dominant is the therapeutic version of the penitent privilege in modern law? So a lot of the actual state laws have a fairly narrow set of language to them that actually dates back to the early New York laws, which were written quite narrowly and, and only applied to a small group of denominations that had something similar to Roman Catholic confession, so that they would not apply to the standard Protestant and similar type groups. But courts have, at least since the middle of the 20th century, tended to interpret the language very broadly to reflect the kind of broad vision of penitent privilege that does appear in some other states. 
particularly Poe's Rule of Evidence 506, which of course did not pass, but was proposed in the federal rules, had a very broad definition of how penitent privilege should apply, very much a, a spiritual advice for all people kind of vision. And many courts have interpreted their narrow language in their actual own state statutes to express the same kind of broad vision that the proposed rule had, even though historically that's a misreading of the statute. So I'd like to return to this idea of perspective. So there's narrow and broad, but as you were describing it in Smith, the two privileges are not only different in scope, but very different in outlook, or at least in the theory that backs the privilege. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, so the broad privilege tends to primarily be justified on instrumental grounds. Now, if you actually look at scholarship, a lot of scholars actually prefer sort of humanistic justifications for the privilege, but courts, at least in Wigmore and the middle of the 20th century decisions, have justified the penitent privilege on explicitly instrumental grounds, saying all people have, or at least usually have, some sort of desire to confess and to seek spiritual comfort, and that penitent privilege is more or less equivalent to psychoanalyst privilege, but with a religious cast on it, that they're supposed to achieve the same kind of therapeutic support for the individual. That kind of instrumental understanding is not what you see in 19th century texts, which ground themselves quite literally on theology and on a particular conception of the person that says, if you hold a certain set of beliefs, then you need because of those beliefs to be able to confess. But if you don't hold to those theological positions, then there's no reason to give you this particular privilege because this privilege is really just about ensuring equality as a citizen, despite the particular set of beliefs you hold. Yeah, and there's a pluralistic cast to it, which is that certain religions need this particular protection in order to continue to have particular religious rights. And that's the reason why you have the privilege not the more secularized, broader rationale that is behind the proposed federal rule. Absolutely. So one is about substantive equality just for a small number of sects, and the other is a much broader vision of what's instrumentally good, regardless of particular theological beliefs. So what do you think happened? Why the shift over time? Or has there always been a tension in this rule? I get the sense from your paper that the narrow version, the pluralistic version, was the dominant one, at least early in the Republic. And then there's some kind of shift at some point. So the shift clearly happens. Uh, and it really occurs around World War II. I think the first clear sign of a shift is in when the, the model code of evidence is produced in the 1940s. It has a very explicitly broad privilege. And then from that, a bunch of states adopt versions of that, including the proposed but not passed federal rule of evidence. But exactly why is not something I actually try to get into in the paper, because I think it's hard to really pin down any particular reason. I do think a central issue was concerns about the establishment clause. There was some concern that if you give a special privilege only to certain groups that have certain theologic positions, is that favoring those faiths over other faiths? Now, it's quite clear that the early 19th century judges would have said, of course, it's not favoring those faiths. We have to give them that in order to achieve equality between them and people who hold other faiths that don't have this vision. So if you shift from a substantive vision of equality to more of a formal vision of equality, then it seems like you're favoring Roman Catholics, but that was the opposite of the justification being used in the 19th century. 
so far, everything we've talked about is largely descriptive. Normatively, do you have a vision or a view on which of these perspectives is the right way that we should think about the privilege? So I am strongly sympathetic to Justice Scalia's dissent in Jaffe versus Redmond. That admittedly is not about predator privilege as a case on therapeutic privilege, but Justice Scalia in that sense rightly lays out traditionally the law needs everyone's evidence. And there's always going to be particular groups that are going to want to, for their own particular interests, get a privilege extended to them. But there really isn't people fighting for more evidence in the courtroom and thus better decisions in the courtroom. So for me, normatively, I think a very narrow privilege is definitely better. By accidentally extending the predatory privilege to everyone, we end up at least potentially excluding a lot of good evidence that doesn't seem like it's needed. And every privilege only exists for policy reasons. I mean, privileges inherent to them don't exist to actually improve decisions in the courtroom. And the policy justifications for our very broad pendant privilege seem pretty weak to me. So I would like a return to a much more narrow scope. I don't think there's any possibility, though, that state legislatures are going to follow me on that. There's another interesting point that you raise in your paper that the modern privilege, because it's broad, sometimes tends to be disfavored. That I think you had quoted something like a 25% success rate for those who actually invoke the modern penitential privilege, and that maybe if it were more narrow, it would actually be more successful. Now, I don't know how that cuts because you would raise it less often if it were narrow, but then maybe it's a better expression of what we're trying to protect in that context. Absolutely. I think that courts have recognized that if the privilege were actually enforced in the broad way that it's been written in the laws, that it would just exclude so much evidence that they have to find ways to allow certain things in despite the kind of straight text. Yeah, it's only about 25% success rate according to empirical studies. No doubt that is because a lot of these borderline cases that would, of course, never have been defended under the narrow privilege and would have been obviously admissible under that narrow privilege are still being allowed in under the broad privilege through somewhat underhanded, uh, clever, creative solutions by judges. It's a cleaner solution. Just the issue is that the scope of a privilege has been drawn so broadly that it really isn't workable anymore than just cut it back to a more reasonable scope. But it's a hard one to sell. Any concerns about the administrability of the narrow version? Having courts assess things like whether this particular confessional right is essential to the church that's involved? I mean, absolutely, this would be an issue. And this was an issue in the early 19th century, but since there was only about six or so major denominations at the time, it wasn't that difficult in the 19th century. Quite often, judges used judicial notice to determine what the particular theological positions of a denomination was. Occasionally, they would call experts or look to theological documents or so forth. Today, it would be a much bigger issue. There's just so many denominations, so many different religions. I imagine that judges would have to have some sort of battle of the experts to determine this. And that does bring in all the difficulties that would be inherent in trying to daubertize a theological expert. Daubert's really not designed to determine who would be a theological expert or not very well. So perhaps simply to avoid that kind of issue the more modern broad privilege is necessary. I think it's unfortunate that 
so much evidence ends up having to be potentially excluded merely because of a administrative problem there. But I can understand the administrative problem might require that. Although it's kind of interesting. Oh, you deal with Daubert in every other area of law and seem to poke on nevertheless, but I think I can see that. Final question for you. What are you working on going forward? Any plans to build on this project or do you have other ongoing projects in the world of evidence? So I think a project on the theological links of 18th century evidence law is the project that I have kind of on the horizon wanting to do. That the evidence law in the Anglo-American tradition arose in kind of the long 18th century at a time when these theological questions were being highly debated, where in America in particular, theology was practically the sole intellectual tradition in 18th century America. Almost all intellectual type books were written by clergymen in 18th century America still. So recognizing that all these issues that we end up debating in evidence law arose with a strong theological valence, which may or may not have been removed, or is often still hiding beneath the debates we have about, oh, the religion and competence, or dying declarations, or jury deliberation with pious perjury and so forth. These were absolutely central questions that arose with a theological framework with them. And to some extent, that theological framework is still kind of lurking in a slightly secularized form in the background on a lot of these issues. There's a book there that I would love to write if I ever have the time to write it. Well, Nathan, thanks for taking the time to talk to us about the history of the clergy penitent privilege. Great having you on the show. Thanks so much for having me. One conceptual thread that Nathan's work evokes is how old evidentiary rules are sometimes recast through a more modern lens. A doctrine like the penitent privilege, which apparently had its origins in religious accommodation or religious deference, was recast into a therapeutic, more secular doctrine that looks a lot like the psychotherapist-patient privilege. Or take another example. Julia Simon Kerr's work, Credibility by Proxy, which we discussed years ago in episode 15, that article suggested that the Victorian idea of credibility, in other words, whether certain people were worthy of credit, that doctrine became recast as character for truthfulness or the propensity of a person to lie, a probabilistic assessment. I suppose in a sense, this is an inherent phenomenon in the common law in which doctrines evolve through precedent and ultimately get recast. But I sometimes wonder if it's a good thing for evidence law. It is, after all, a bit of a smokescreen. It allows the modern doctrine to claim the weight of history when it is actually something very different. And perhaps worse yet, the smokescreen obstructs us from having a frank discussion about the merits of the various evidentiary practices, whether they be old or new. Nathan's work, I think, helpfully exposes this potential sleight of hand, at least in the clergy penitent privilege context. At least for me, which version of the privilege is preferable will probably require more thought. 
the religious accommodation angle is surely a thought-provoking one, but so is the more modern, secularized version. And as Nathan notes, the narrow version has the significant added benefit of allowing more evidence in, and for someone like me who strongly believes that the law is entitled to every person's evidence, that's an important advantage. I'm very much looking forward to Nathan's future work on the religious origins of various evidentiary doctrines and thinking more about the pros and cons of recasting old doctrines into new ones. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Randstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the University of Arkansas School of Law. The associate producer is Alex Nunn, and the production editor is Madeline DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Kyra Hammond, and background music is provided by Kirsten Castle-Greer, Felix Wong, and Alex Crew. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you will join us again next time when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof. Thank you.